Hello and welcome to the first episode of Archaeobotany History. In this episode, we'll cover the Archaeobotany of Southeast Anatolia. Southeast Anatolia is home to some of the earliest Neolithic sites in the Old World, which is to say Africa, Europe, and Asia. A paper by the University of Liverpool, Department of Classics and Egyptology and Archaeology, was made to showcase the many findings found in this area, specifically the site known as Gusur Hoyak. Hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. This location has artifacts that date back to the 12th and late 11th centuries BCE. This specific site is located in the third province of southeast Turkey, near the intersection of the Tigris River. These excavations have revealed interesting findings such as remnants of stone structures, chipped and ground stone, remnants of circular buildings with internally plastered walls and stone basins, as well as monolithic pillars. They even found human burials. And even more findings were found. You'll be going over these findings next. In a layer of the soil called the PPNA, Various types of wood charcoal were found. Using various charcoal identification methods, they've identified wood from the Prunus genus, specifically the subgenus Amygdalidus, the subgroup of the Prunus genus that contains almonds and peaches. Other types of Prunus, as well as maple, oak, and other species were also found in moderate amounts in charcoal form. So it appears that in this area, close relatives of the almond and the peach, or perhaps almond and peach trees themselves, were often used for charcoal in this area. Tree species not found in this area, such as birch, have also been found in charcoal form. The writer hypothesizes that this may have been obtained from driftwood. In that same layer, they also found different species of lens or lentil, different species of vetch and sweet pea as well. These are dated between 11,400 and 10,900 BP. In the same layer, they dug further and found various burn fossils. 99.1% of the birds found were of the partridge family. This is in stark contrast with other sites in a similar area which had a more diverse level of hunting in terms of the variety of species that are hunted. And there are almost no aquatic birds found in this site, with the exception of one bone from a crane and one bone from a white-tailed eagle. It appears that this culture did not hunt in the water areas, in slightly less deep areas of the soil that have been dated to 10,500 and 10,300 BP, they found the wild ancestors to domesticated vetch, domesticated lentils, as well as einkorn, an early domesticated form of grain, and emmer, yet another domesticated form of grain. Both of these species were progenitors to wheat. Species found in the Agilops genus were also found, yet another ancestor of what we call wheat. If you want to know the origin of wheat, see my video on that subject. They also found remnants of seeds of different legume species such as Metagoradata, a relative of what we call alfalfa. Now on to further findings relating to 
the wild ancestors of crops. Plant ruminants found in this site of the lens genus seem to be morphologically similar to the wild form of lentil. These remnants had evidence of high moisture content and charring, indicating some form of cooking in water. They also found remnants of wheat, either wild or cultivated. The way they would plan to determine it would be by comparing it to other species of known type, such as the species labeled on this image, as well as looking for the husk scar that usually happens when husked wheat is de-husked. The resulting de-husking process leaves behind a very specific scar. And based on these two factors, at least some of the grain could be considered emmer or einkorn domesticated types. Although there's still evidence of wild, undomesticated grains being consumed during this time period as well. Due to the similarities, morphologically speaking, to the wild ancestors of various crops, the legumes found i.e. the lentil, sweet pea, and vetch plants, were likely gathered from the wild as no evidence of cultivation was found. So it's very likely that around the year 10,500 BP, some of the grains have been domesticated, but there were no domesticated legumes in this area yet. In another site, dated around the same time, they found a greater variety of wild legumes in the same layers, such as lentil, wild pea, wild vetch, faba bean, wild chickpea, and wild sweet pea. There's also a mixture of wild type and domestic type einkorn found in that area as well. Out of the 355 grain spikelets found, 243 were wild types and 39 were domesticated, with 73 being possibly domesticated. So this site compared to the Gursir site, which we've been talking about more so, has had an earlier start in terms of cultivation of wild plants and domesticated plants rather than hunting and gathering. This alongside other pieces of evidence seem to suggest that grain domestication in this area happened faster than previously postulated. Well, that concludes this video. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Archaeobotany on Agri-History. In this episode, we'll cover five plants and their symbolism in different parts of human history. Let's get started. The first plant we'll cover is the crocus. The crocus is a well-known genus of plants with many different species all across the world. In 2000 BC, the Hittites lived and celebrated a festival where certain bulb plants, which include crocuses, were used, including saffron. And to this day, Similar celebrations happen in Turkey on the 6th of May, where different types of crocus bulbs are shared alongside wheat. In Greek mythology, crocus species are symbolic of resurrection and reawakening, and even heaven. These are used as indicators of nature's rebirth, and these became important in the cult of Ariadne, the Crete and Pharaon goddess of vegetation. There have been many different on the island of Phaos, there are many Minoan frescoes depicting crocuses. In a site called Akatori on Phara, detailed scenes of young girls picking crocuses have been excavated. 
The regular patterns of crocus appearing in this painting seem to suggest some form of cultivation was happening of crocuses. This dates back to the 2nd millennium BC. Similar cultures also existed in the Nile Delta of Egypt, although the saffron was mostly used for religious offerings, similar to the cult of Ariadne in Minoan culture. Still yet another fresco in Minoan culture depicts a goddess sitting on a throne characterized by a large collecting basket with the surrounding figures wearing saffron-colored dresses. This in combination with other frescoes indicate that a fresco was considered a symbol of adulthood. Now on to the seed daffodil. Seed daffodils are relatives of the amaryllis. They are also depicted in Minoan artwork with many frescoes and paintings that have been dated back to the 17th century BC. These seem to be associated with a veneration of another goddess. In another fresco, there's a depiction of a priestess bending over, holding a ritual apron in her hand. These priestesses seem to be associated with the underworld and death, further indicated with depictions of seed daffodil on Minoan sarcophaguses one of which has on the left side a seed daffodil painted and on the right side a griffin. The later civilization known as the Mycenaeans, which succeeded Minoans, have blades with depictions of seed daffodil on them. Now onto the symbolism of Silphium and giant fennel. These two species are commonly used herbs. Silphium is extinct now, but giant fennel still exists. In ancient times, silphium was a universal remedy and commonly used as an aphrodisiac, and was depicted on signet rings, coins, and many pieces of art. It was also historically used as a contraceptive and as a means of causing an abortion. The giant fennel is depicted in Greek mythology as a plant used to bring fire secretly from the realm of the gods to the realm of humans. It is also used by the god Dionysus of ancient Greek mythology. His entourage of drunk party girls called the Maenades often make use of this stuff in Greek mythology. Dionysus was also considered the grandson of Aphrodite, the goddess of love in Greek mythology. Silphium is depicted as a symbol for Aphrodite, especially on Mycenaean signet rings found in 1877, which had a detailed depiction of a silphium plant with a young woman, Aphrodite, sitting underneath it. Although other scholars believe that the symbol represents the cycle of life and death, since other depictions showcase the plant dying and then reviving. Now onto the iris. The iris is common in Egyptian culture as symbols of victory, power, and royalty. During the reign of King Tutmos. The first, rhizomes and bulbs of iris were introduced from Syria to Egypt, and stylized depictions of iris flowers are depicted on scepters of pharaohs. In ancient Greek, iris meant rainbow, which comes from the name of the god's messenger, Iris. Iris would take the souls of females to the underworld after they died. There's a 17th century fresco depicting Orpheus came with his wife Eurydice before being bitten by a snake, and Eurydice falling to the ground with a iris across her collar. 
symbolically showing that she's dead. Similarly, in Turkey from the Ottoman Empire up to the 20th century, had the iris be used as a symbol for graves. In Japan, however, the blue iris was a symbol for bravery. In medieval Sweden, it was used as a symbol for protection against smooth talkers. It was also used in ancient times as a symbol for the Virgin Mary. It later became a symbol for Sir Thomas Aquinas, the well-known Christian theologian. The iris was also considered a symbol of chivalry and was used in heraldic albums in Sicily, Navarra, Hungary, and Britain. And the famous French symbol called the fleur de lace was derived from an iris species and was introduced by King Louis VII in France as a standard for the Second Crusade. And in modern days, it's used as a symbol for a sports club in Germany. Hello and welcome to another episode of Archaeobotany. In this episode, we'll cover a brief history of perfume in the ancient world, the 19th century, and modern times. Let's get started. We will start with the ancient Mediterranean and Near East. In the land of Nubia, there was heavy influence from their neighbors, the Egyptians, as well as various Hellenistic and Asiatic imports from other countries and kingdoms. The Nubian people back in the day were known for making finished products from raw materials, which is what they imported so they can export finished goods. Perfume and incense being one such major example. These people obtained many raw ingredients for themselves as well in order to make finished perfumes. They collected frankincense from the Boswella tree and myrrh resin from the Comifera tree. And based on current evidence, this culture has been collecting resin from these two trees to make perfumes since at least the Neolithic, although it became more common as time went on. Perfume was of great importance to this ancient group of people, since many tombs found had jugs of perfume surrounding it. This is possibly for funeral purposes, although only for those of high status. Further evidence suggests that they were used for libations to pre-treat the body for burial. They were also great at making different types of flasks to have faces portrayed on it alongside various other images. Imitations were often made by the poor or middle-class individuals within that society in hopes of sharing the same fate as the aristocrats and the kings of that time. Most of these funeral rituals, with the exception of lighting incense, came directly from Egypt. The lighting of incense, however, predates the Egyptian empire, and the incense burners have been found in Nubia that are dated between the 4th and 3rd millennium BC. It was very likely that Egypt imported most of their incense from Nubia. Although frankincense and myrrh was a primary, primary perfume export to Egypt, they also produced perfume from other species, such as species from the Acacia genus and Santalum genus, and a great many other plants, although the latter two were often imported as well to Egypt. Now onto the perfumes of ancient Egypt. The Egyptians were the first known individuals to pioneer the distillation of perfume based on the work of Pliny, although slightly more primitive than what we have right now. Prior to that, most perfumes were made by mixing the scents and preserving them in oil or fat. 
and for the majority of human history, perfume was preserved in such a fashion. The ancient Greeks would obtain a plant called balanos from Syria or Egypt to produce a perfume by preserving it in olive oil or almond oil. Egypt exported many raw materials used to make perfume to different parts of the Greek world, such as once again balanus, various types of tree resins such as myrrh, bitter almonds, olive oil, to a certain degree, cardamoms, sweet rush, honey, and wine, as well as balsam, glabrium, and turpentine resin. These compounds were also used to make perfume in Egypt as well. A special perfume called the late or spate, made exclusively in Egypt, was made using the fruit of a palm called adipose. Another essential oil was made from Kyperium, another Egyptian plant. These writings from various Greek and Roman authors seem to be confirmed since remnants of these herbs, spices, and resins and flowers were found in various tombs throughout Egypt. Eight specimens of perfume jars have been analyzed and they found remnants of storax incense, turpentine, resins, myrrh, a plant called bitumen of Judea, henna, a mixture of various aromatic vegetables and palm wine, as well as a mixture of cassia and tamarind with grape wine. Now on to the perfumes of 19th century France. Before we get into French perfume, we must take a full summary of the tracing of European perfume. During the 5th century, an Arab perfumer, Avancina, invented the distillation of rosewater, which became the major scent in the Arab world for quite some time. After the Arabs conquered Spain, Avicenna set up shop there, spreading the fragrance everywhere. After the Crusades, the Crusaders obtained the information of how to distill rose water, as well as various types of oriental scents, and brought them back to the rest of Europe to make use of them, allowing the first perfume made through alcohol distillation to be spread across the world. In 1390, the French company Grasse, initially a glove factory, began making perfumes combining the mix of jasmine, orange, and tuberose to make perfume. The glove making and perfume industry was not separate until 1724. King Louis XV made the perfume court where all his courtiers would change perfume every day. The oldest still existing fragrance was made in 1729. That's called E de Cologne, since it was made in Cologne, France. Marie Antoinette, you may have heard of her, was also a big fan of perfumes. During the French Revolution, perfumes and other luxury items were considered verboten. Although perfume a la guillotine enjoyed some short-term popularity. But once Napoleon Bonaparte showed up, the information on how to make perfume was passed down to most people, and perfume became a symbol of hard work and labor rather than luxury. This in combination with Napoleon's own fondness for cologne restored perfume back to its previous success. Perfume also became a means to decorate things, for the average man to make his house and wife into status symbols, and as a result perfume became primarily used for 
females. Napoleon had a very big fondness for fruit and herb slash flower scents. For instance, Eau de Cologne was made from a mixture of rosemary, orange flower, bergamot, and lemon. And he went through 60 gallon bottles a month, using them for many different purposes. He used it in bath water, mixed it with wine, taken it as a mouthwash, and even ate it on sugar. Napoleon's first wife, Josephine, was very fond of animal-based scents, such as musk, civic, and certain spices like vanilla and ambergris. Smells were disliked by the emperor. After a disagreement, Josephine had a bit of revenge by splashing that perfume all across the room, and their combined scents still hung in the air 70 years later. Make sure you have a happy wife so you can have a happy life. In order to increase the amount of variety of perfumes, Emperor Napoleon split up the glove and perfume industry into two separate industries. And from the 1950s onward, new perfumes made from different plants came into vogue. This included perfumes made from patchouli, sandalwood, velveter, and Lang Lang, which brings us to the next stage of perfume history. After the French Revolution, there was a decline in perfume making for obvious reasons. But after the dust settled, perfume made a comeback and the perfume industry grew from there. In the 18th century, large flower farms were developed to supply the different Parisian perfume manufacturers throughout the region. The Kiris factory was established in 1768, followed by Lothair in 1795, and Rohr in 1820, and Mero in 1832. In the mid-1800s, Robertet Perfume House was also established, and the Société de Perfume, Naturels de Cannes, I'm definitely mispronouncing all of that, my French sucks. Well, it's actually non-existent, so sue me. Was established in 1883. None of these perfume houses, however, could fully manufacture enough perfume to meet demand for every single essence. As a result, most of the perfume houses worked together and traded scents amongst each other. However, by 1914, 30 raw material suppliers were beginning to produce synthetic compounds thanks to Emperor Napoleon encouraging research into organic chemistry, which allowed the isolation of different scents such as geraninol, and menthol, extracted from roses and mints respectively. Chemists later on tried to recreate these chemicals using fossil materials like coal and oil. One example of this discovery process was the discovery that phenyl ethyl alcohol, a derivative of benzene, could act as a duplicate to the scent of a rose, and benthyl acetate, derived from tutiline, could replicate the scent of jasmine. Continuing on with that, Chemists continue to invent different chemicals, such as vanillin, to produce smoke and leather scents, and ionin, which could smell like violets. This allowed perfumers to create different variations in scent, greater than what was available before with just essential oils. The first modern-style perfume we know of was called Jiki, and was created by Ami Gourlain. It was launched in 1889, the same year that the Eiffel Tower was made. Rather than being an attempt to create an imitation or preservation of the scent of a flower, it was a composition of both natural and synthetic ingredients used to make a multi-layered perfume that could be used to elicit certain emotions. This made the perfumer both artist and scientist. 
One of the early feminists of his time, perfumer Paul Porat, attempted to sell new perfume as a compliment to his clothing. Later on, another clothes maker slash perfumer called Gabrielle Coco Chanel pushed the idea to its logical conclusion, creating a perfume called Chanel No. 5 in 1921, creating the Chanel Perfume Company. And so perfume and fashion became combined together, like gloves and perfume before it. And many of the other major perfume companies of today showed up around that same time period. Well, that covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Archaeobotany with Agri History. In this episode, we'll cover the products traded and the trade routes of the ancient Greek, Minoan, and Mycenaean empires. The Minoan, alongside the Mycenaean empires, were the earliest known civilizations in Greece. The Mycenaeans being the progenitors of modern Greek mythology. One of the earliest known Minoan colonies is a settlement on Castri, a part of the island of Caifra. This colony has been dated to be older than 2000 BCE. There are also various other settlements in the Greek islands, showcasing the wide array of areas the Minoan settled during the height of their empire. Frescoes found that the remnants of this empire, mostly in Crete, carried a great many frescoes and pieces of art as well as vases that showcased various types of mythologies, as well as a wide array of different statues which showcased their religion as well. A later genetic study revealed that the Greeks came from Anatolia at least 1,000 years before the Bronze Age in the Mediterranean region. Based on the vases found, large storage vessels in the form of jugs seemed to be the primary means that the ancient Minoans stored food. The palace of Knossos, where King Minos, yes, the same guy from Greek mythology, actually lived, also has a great many frescoes. After the excavation of the palace of Knossos in 1900, and the deciphering of the different tablets of Minoan language, in 1952, many of the trade agreements and what was traded were deciphered. And as a result, we now have a better idea of what was traded between the Mycenaeans and Minoans. Most of the stuff that was exported based on this information was pottery, which was which was both exported to the ancient Mycenaeans and the ancient Egyptians, as well as the ancient Canaanites as well. Artists from Egypt and Canaan would also hire Minoan artists to draw different frescoes on their palace walls. Many of the Egyptian ships were also built by Minoans as well, and Egyptian children were well versed in both Minoan and Egyptian language, both in writing and in speech. The main cause of the Minoan collapse, which ended their empire and allowed them to be conquered by the Mycenaeans, was the Pharaoh eruption, which will be discussed in further detail in another Agri Reflections episode. But needless to say, this eruption destroyed the entire empire. Now on to the trade and trade routes. Based on current information, the Minoan Empire commonly exported wine, which was translated from the Minoan word wino, W-I-N-O, as well as currants and olive oil. They also sold herbs and cloth, and a type of dye called cucuteria, 
which is one of the most expensive dyes because it's purple, a rare color in that region. This dye was obtained from a shellfish called a murex. They also imported obsidian, tin, and seals from Anatolia, and copper from Cyprus. These economies were codependent on each other in order to maintain function, and there's no evidence of coinage being used, so it must have been bartered. Although in the later parts of Minoan society, silver and gold became used as a medium of exchange. Both the Mycenaeans and Minoans raised cattle, pigs, sheep, and goat, as well as ox. They also grew wheat quite frequently as well. They also grew and traded many different types of plants, such as grapes, figs, olives, and poppy seeds. The Minoans specialized more so in carrots, which were wild in that area, alongside pears and quince. Likewise, they also grew olive trees. The Minoans and Mycenaeans also imported date palm tree species, as well as various cats for hunting, from Egypt. The Minoan colony seemed to work on a lease method, where all fields are leased out to farmers, who then raised sheep, rams, and goats, and pigs, as well as bulls or ox, some on a very large scale. One tablet called Linear Tablet B records one individual growing 1,509 rams beside another field that had 2,440 rams. Most of this livestock was used for wool or for sacrificial purposes, based on these tablets. The Mycenaeans used a similar method, but only recordings of rail gardens and farms were ever written down, so we do not know if there were any small farmers, and if they were, what they did. What we do know is that the two primary grain foodstuff for both civilizations were, were wheat and barley. Once again, Linear Tablet B records 10,000 units of wheat being grown on one farm in the Minoan Empire. The Minoans typically were self-sufficient in most basic food needs. As a result, most of their imports were purely spiritual or luxury goods or exotic raw materials. This put them in a pretty good trade advantage. In the Bronze Age, there was no economy based on currency, it was all barter. As such, a portion of the foodstuff and trade goods sent to maritime crews, which were used for trading purposes, was given to the sailors as a profit, with the merchants and other groups having to plan out the trade routes to minimize the amount of cost. There was heavy trading between both Mycenaeans and Minoans, based on the fact that Minoan products were found in a Mycenaean colony in Lerna. Based on current information, and the writings of Pliny, there was a heavy textile industry, and that Minoan saffron was like no other saffron and was used extensively for perfumes and dyes and medicine. So dye trade was very important in ancient Minoan culture, as evidenced with the finding of grinding tools and leftover murex shells in a remnant form in Minoan sites alongside the famous fresco called the Saffron Gatherers, which showcased how to gather saffron, alongside various pieces of pottery that are decorated with crocus iconography. And of course, Linear B, the tablet, has records showing how well saffron sold and how 
higher value of a commodity it was. In Minoan areas, they found remnants of frankincense and myrrh, as well as traces of iris species, used in the creation of different types of perfume, and scented oils, and incense. In 1982, a 3,000-year-old ship was discovered in eastern Turkey, with remnants of ancient cargo containing a large amount of different late Bronze Age items that could be traced back to various types of civilizations. It contained a wide array of artifacts which include jewels and raw and finished goods. The cultures that the primordial artifacts could be traced back to include Mycenaean culture, Syrio-Palestinian, Cypriot, Egyptian, Kassite, Assyrian, and Nubian. The main cargo seems to be primarily of Cypriot copper in the form of 354 ingots. There's also various types of resin and seashells and many other types of items. The crew members are believed to be Canaanite, Cypriot, and Mycenaean in nature. This indicates the wide array of trading that was happening during the Late Bronze Age between many different cultures, which included the Minoans and Mycenaeans. Well, that concludes this video. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to Archaeobotany with Agri-History. In this episode, we'll cover the timeline of cereal and pulse domestication in West Asia using materials that have been dated between 17,000 BC and 5,500 BC. The plants found in this region that will be studied by this paper I'm referencing will include the cereal species, einkorn wheat, emmer wheat, hard wheat, bread wheat, two-row barley, six-row barley, and rye. The legumes would include chickpea, grass pea, lentil, lupin, pea, broad bean, and bitter vetch. The fruit and nuts used will be almond, caper, hackberry, carob, cornelian cherry, hawthorn, fig, walnut, olive, pistachio, cherry plum, pear, oak, blackberry, and a jujube species called Christvorn. And the oil and fiber crops mentioned will also be listed, specifically flax. Let's get started. Using materials day between 17,000 BC and 8,500 BC, the earliest known sites that have pulse and cereal remnants in Southwest Asia come from the Middle and Upper Paleolithic deposits in Northern Israel. They have found carbonized peas that were found to be dated between 60 and 50,000 BC at Kabera Cave. They also found a single carbonized seed dating to be around 31,000 BC. The peas are likely well gathered based on current archaeological evidence, but the paper is less certain about the grain variety. In the archaeological site Ohalo 2, on the southwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, a multi-species food plant assemblage was found that was dated to 17,000 BC approximately. This plant assemblage was likely a small landfill of some sort. Amongst what was found in that area included several species of large grain grasses, including wild barley and wild emmer. Other species found that heap included wild lentil, wild almond, wild pistachio, some acorns, some wild olives, pears, and grapes. In yet another site called Giat 6, which is found in central Jordan, 
that was dated to around 14,000 BC. They found various remnants of different seeds of chinopods, sedges, and grasses, some of which may have been used for food purposes. In various dig sites in the Levant, dated to around 10,500 BC, found larger settlements than what was in earlier periods, i.e. tribal areas that go up to 5,000 square meters in one area. These areas seem to have some stone-built structures, possible storage pits, and some pounding slash grinding equipment, as well as primitive cemeteries. They also found a greater level of oak pollen in that area, indicating that the oak forest population was growing at that time. Various cereals, nuts, and pulses dwell in such forests. As discovered by Dr. Hillman in 1996, two other sites in the Levant found large numbers of lupin seeds as well as small quantities of wild barley and almond. These sites are dated between 10,500 BC and 9,300 BC, and these sites are found in the coastal hills of northern Israel. The lupins were obtained from the latter site, while barley and lentil were obtained at Hamna 27, yet another dig site in the North Jordan Valley, dated around that same time period. In the soil layers of 10,800 BC, there's evidence of increased warming, which caused a deglaciation, although the impact was not explored in detail. But by 9,300 BC, there's geological evidence of a cooling period, and the researchers are speculating that it's around this time that the incentives for cereal and pulse domestication would have been in play. The site called Tel Abu Hura, found in northern Syria, dated to around 9000 BC and 8500 BC, has been identified as a source of various remnants of different species, which include various types of grain like einkorn and rye, as well as a wide array of different pulses like lentil and bitter vetch, and nuts and fruits such as pistachio, hackberry, and pear. However, the specific morphology was not found, so they're unable to confirm whether or not it's domesticated or not. Now onto the sites that date between 8500 BC and 7500 BC. During this time period, the first evidence of ruminant animals first appeared. This time period also included the first appearance of rectangular slash square architecture, as well as more complex funeral and ritual practices based on archaeological evidence. The earliest clear indication of ruminant animal domestication comes from around 7000 BC at the Ganja Dera site in western Iran, and there was a goat ruminant, indicating that the first animals we domesticated for livestock purposes were goats. It is speculated that the domestication event resulted from people overgrazing existing wild game, incentivizing the progenitor form of farming. Other sites dated between 7500 and 6500 BC had plants assemblages that showcased domesticated forms of two-row barley, and in another site dated around 7000 BC, 
they found the two most common grains in that area were domesticated barley and domesticated wheat, specifically emmer wheat. In the same site, they also found small amounts of einkorn wheat. In similar areas that date around 7000 BC, they had also found remnants of fully domesticated six-row barley and fully domesticated wheat, although not hard wheat. And in the site called the Khan Hassan Free in western Turkey, they found remnants of domesticated rye. Amongst these areas, it was found that pea had the widest distribution in the wild, while bitter vetch and chickpea seemed to be restricted to the Levant region and Turkey, and broad bean was only found at northern Israel. It's been thought that pulses were widely cultivated and domesticated at this time, but it's only three sites that showcase any evidence of domestication. For peas, Domestication evidence is found at the Kayono site. This is dated to 6700 BC. Another site dated to 68000 BC at Yifahel in Israel has evidence of broad bean domestication. And then Jericho, around that same time period, possible indications of chickpea domestication were also found. The Israel location is most interesting because they found remnants of 2000 broad beans and 1,400,000 lentils. In the Jericho region, there are also many types of fruit and nut species found in that region, with the pistachio being the most common, followed by fig, almond, caper, and grape. Now onto the sites dated between 6,500 BC and 5,500 BC. By this time period, evidence of both sheep and goat farming were able to be found, and by 6000 BC evidence of pig and cattle farming were also discovered. First in Turkey and southern Syria, 16 sites found between the Levant, western Turkey, and western Iran, different plant assemblages were found. The range of grains was similar to that of the previous section of centuries, although hard wheat was also found in that area as well and wheat became the second most common grain in that region, based on the findings of these digs. Although neither of these species were found in ancient Iran or Iraq. In the dig site, Talabu Hura, I'm definitely mispronouncing that name, but domesticated rye was found in that area, but it's not found anywhere else. The most significant evidence of domesticated forms of pulses show up here, with domesticated forms of pulse species such as lentil have been found at the Tal Ramad site and have been dated to 6400 BC. Domesticated peas were recorded in the Tel Borks site with various types of pea being very common in many different sites in Syria, Turkey, and Iraq. Bitter vetch has been reduced in findings in this time period being found mostly in Turkey. And as of right now, chickpea has only been found in the Tel Ramad site, with no traces of the broad bean in these layers. Greater levels of flaxseed were also found in these dig sites, and its domesticated form dated around that same time period was also found in Tel Ramad. The range of fruit and their commonality remained unchanged at this time once again based on similar findings from these digs. 
Well, that concludes my video. The paper I reference is called Charting the Emergence of Serial and Pulse Domestication in Southwest Asia by Dr. Andrew N. Gennard at the University of London. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Archaeobotany History. In this episode, we'll cover the history of cattle breeding in ancient Rome. Amongst the livestock found in ancient Rome, cattle were amongst the important animals grown. And as during this ancient Roman time that many of the pivotal traits found in modern livestock occurred during this time period. So Dr. Michael McKinnon created a paper to elucidate the origins of these breeding practices using both ancient texts and archaeological evidence, which we'll discuss in this episode. In ancient Rome, the most prolific writers on agriculture were Cato, Varro, Comella, and Palladius, as well as writers as well as the writers of encyclopedias of that age, which include Pliny the Elder and Alien, spelled A-E-L-I-A-N, not to be confused with Martians. Cattle were vital in Roman economics, especially in agriculture. Pliny the Elder states that their purpose in life is a partner in labor and in animal husbandry. In fact, Italy's name derives from the Latin word vituli, which means baby cow. The breeds listed by its ancient offers usually conform to the geographical location this breed is found in. Although their status of breed is unknown, considering that you need to do genetic testing to determine if they are actual breeds. As a result in this paper, breed is used as a colloquial term rather than an official term. This paper also makes the assumption that ancient and modern geographic boundaries are the same, which is somewhat justified since the provincial boundaries found in modern Italy are nearly identical to what's found in Roman ancient borders. And the environment these cattle occupied were likely similar to what was found in ancient times due to archaeological evidence. The second assumption is that reproductive isolation was present, which would allow breeds to form, i.e. there was minimal interbreeding between different individuals between geographic locations, which is possible due to the natural ecological and environmental barriers such as mountains, rivers, marshes, and widely varying temperature locations within Italy, as well as the different cultural, social, and linguistic separations between these ancient peoples in Rome. Now on to the experimental results of the study. The archaeological evidence found in the 97 Italian dig sites were gathered from different dig sites that are dated to different time periods. Those of ancient Roman Republic origin between 500 BC to 50 BC. Those sampled of imperial origin 50 BC to 300 AD and finally late antiquity, which goes from 300 AD to 500 AD, were studied. And here's the results. Cattle were raised in a wide array of different areas, and after studying the different bones, teeth, and skull sizes, there was a wide array of different strains, due to the wide array of different bone and tooth sizes, to be solely the result of size variation between the sexes, 
and too vast to be constrained to one breed. The second thing that I'll discover is that there was a general increase in size in cattle, especially in height, within each geographic zone, from the ancient Republic era up to late antiquity, indicating a gradual increase in breeding for size was going on during that time period. Stockiness, measured by width and depth of bone, also increased over the different time periods in each geographic area. There are some notable examples. The Latium cattle were noted to increase in height between the Imperial and Late Antiquity times, but not earlier. But stockiness seems to be a continuous increase in that type of cattle, indicating that breeding for increased stockiness came first before increased cattle height. Given that the transition from Republic to Empire created greater urbanization, would have also meant that there was a need for more and more muscular cattle to be bred to cope with the increased population. It could also be possible that the increased height may be because of crossbreeding of another type of ancient cattle called the Umbian cattle, which were already taller by that time point. In the area of Umbria, there is no changes that can be statistically verified in stockiness in that region between the Imperial and Late Antiquity times. This may be because the full extent of how stocky you can get your animals was already achieved in that area. Compared to other areas in Italy, Umbrian cattle rank among the tallest, if not the tallest, cattle in Italy. The many texts also mention two breeds of cattle in Umbria, which include large cattle and small cattle, but only large cattle have been found in the bone records. Apennine cattle show a different trend. There was an increased height from the ancient Roman Republic to late antiquity, but no statistically significant changes to stockiness, indicating that it's possible that in this area, cattle were not used extensively for work purposes due to their less stocky nature, possibly being replaced by donkeys and mules better suited to the mountainous region this breed was found in. The companion breeds of cattle show evidence of being used as a multi-purpose plow and meat animal during earlier times, but were bred more and more for height in comparison to the Latium strain. Considering that the earliest known companion cattle were incredibly small to begin with, their height increase was likely easily obtained because you're going from 0 to 1, so selective breeding could cause rapid increase through simple selection much faster. There's also evidence of very large individual cattle appearing in Republican contexts, possibly indicating that some of these large individuals may be of imported Greek varieties, such as the Epirote cattle breed. It is possible that Greek breeds of cattle were used to improve Roman breeds, and Southern Italy was the first to receive these imports which explains the rapid increase compared to most other varieties of cattle at that time period. Alongside the more fertile lowland pastures in the south mountain areas, based on the range of the Apennine varieties of cattle, as well as the fact that they did not show much variation in length or width during contemporary periods, suggests that this alpine variety seems to be the most resistant to climate change over a period of time. 
Now on to speculations on the origins and reasons behind these new changes. Based on the textual, bioinformatic, and archaeological evidence, many factors have been found that may have incentivized the changes in the calibrees of that time period. One is the increased pressure to produce more food. During the Republic era, when full-time legionnaires were stationed all across Italy to deal with many disputes. Although as the empire expanded, there was also a decreased demand for military provisions due to many wars being abroad rather than being at home, proverbially speaking. Another factor that may have pushed these breeding practices was the rapid demographic growth of Italy during Roman imperial times, caused by increased urbanization and many other factors. This increased population would have needed to be fed, and much of Rome's grain at that time was being imported from other countries. This was done through taxing provinces in Africa and Egypt, but the demand in Italy would still be high. And various Roman agricultural writers claimed that the best-managed livestock farms used increased sophistication when it came to husbandry and arable cultivation and pastures to increase the fodder of animals. Increased fodder alongside breeding could augment cattle size within individual cattle. During the Imperial and Late Antiquity era, breeding stock was also moved to the market to be auctioned off much like it is today. And during this time, regulations on how good the cattle had to be was constantly increasing, further encouraging greater and greater breeding practices to improve the cattle. These would include stress resistance, good conformation, and the accurate weighing of cattle. This would have also created competition, which would have pushed this process even further. Markets would also showcase imported breeds, which may have also improved the Roman breeds overall. There's also the frequent problems of ancient times that would have pushed better and better breeding, such as the allure of new markets, threats of starvation during a poor harvest year, the opening of new trade routes, and the age-old pastime of war would have encouraged breeders to improve cattle to feed people during such times. Well, that covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Archaeobotany. In this episode, we'll discuss the agriculture of ancient South Caucasus society. In this episode, we'll discuss the agriculture and plant-based foods that they consumed in the Kura Araxis culture in the South Caucasus region. During the early Bronze Age in the South Caucasus, the Kura Araxis culture, which existed around 3600 to 3500 BCE and continued until 2600 to 2500 BCE, has been consuming foods throughout different parts of the Middle East. As sites with Kura Araxis artifacts are found in Anatolia, Iran, and the Levant. By this point, plants were already domesticated. This paper by Dr. R. Hovsepan, I'm definitely mispronouncing that name, went through the literature of various researchers in 1977 who excavated 33 sites in the South Caucasus region to figure out what foods were commonly eaten by this ancient culture. Here are the results. Within these sites, fragments of ancient domesticated cereals were found 
in the form of glooms, internodes, and other plant remnants. They found the preserved remnants of different types of barley. This included both six-row hulled barley and hulled two-row barley. The six-row cultivated barley was identified using slightly asymmetric and bent hulled grains, characteristic to this cultivated group of barley. Both two-row and six-row barley subspecies were found in vessels in the Apran Free Sites in Armenia. The two-row barley found there was identified by the lack of asymmetric shape or convolution and were much smaller in size, indicating that it's likely two-row barley. Using the same data, it was found that hulled barley was more scarce in the Neolithic, but by the Chalcolic Age, the number of hulled barley varieties began to rise, and by the early Bronze Age, all barley was hulled in nature. In various Bronze Age sites, it was speculated that hull-less varieties of barley were found, but it could be incorrect due to the fact that the barley grain hulls are often fragile and break during cooking. This may often lead to misidentification of the barley. Now on to the appearance of wheats and other cereals. Wheat has also been identified within these populations of grain within these sites. Due to the wide overlap between different types of wheat, including tetraploid and hexaploid wheat, classifying these varieties by grain is considered subjective. But based on other surrounding pieces of evidence, they've made decent approximations of what type of wheat was found in different spots. First, let's cover hexaploid and tetraploid wheats. Due to the vast similarities between tetraploid and hexaploid wheats, from a grain standpoint, after being excavated, it's impossible to differentiate them from each other, although at least one of these types was found in the cereal pots. But due to the difference between these strains and einkorn, it is possible to differentiate the hexaploid and tetraploid wheats from einkorn. They also found evidence of hullus wheat, indicating that the precursors to modern wheat were already developing at this time. They found specific evidence of other types of wheats as well that are not often seen. This includes club wheat, round-grained wheat, durum wheat, although these are not frequently found in Armenia. Some researchers use distinguished club wheat and round-grained wheat from the rest of the wheats via their compact and nearly spherical forms respectively. But both common wheat and durum wheat also have compact and round forms and still needs to be confirmed by stronger evidence, such as rachis remains and better preserved larger grains. The same researchers also found evidence of modern bread wheat and durum. These were identified based on rachis internodes rather than the grain itself. On a side note, the researchers concluded that there is likely club wheat found in that area due to the fact that club wheat is extremely drought tolerant, which suits the area that this ancient culture dwelled in. They also found examples of hulled wheats in these different sites. The hulled wheats were likely either spelt wheat or emmer. It was concluded it was more likely emmer since it is originally used in the Caucasus region since Neolithic based on other pieces of data that come in different papers. Now on to einkorn. Like emmer, einkorn was always present in the territory of Armenia in various ancient cultures. 
although only in small amounts. Unlike Europe, where this type of wheat was cultivated in large quantities since the Neolithic era, competing with emmer. Now on to other cereals. Other cereals were not commonly found in the early Bronze Age Caucasus sites. Although rye has been found in that area, although they could not tell if it was domesticated rye or the original weed species found growing amongst the wheat plants. Although based on current archaeological evidence, it is unlikely since the most likely time when rye was domesticated and actively harvested was the Iron Age. They found very limited evidence of broom corn, foxtail, and Italian millet being cultivated, and that limited information was found mostly in the Late Bronze Age sites. Which makes sense given that the early forms of millet were likely domesticated in Europe. Now onto pulses, they were not able to find any pulse species in high amounts in the Early Bronze Age sites of these areas. And by pulses I mean peas, lentils, bitter veg, and grass pea. They have found evidence of extensive cultivation of such plants prior to the Bronze Age, but there's also evidence of this process stopping in the Chalcolithic time, and only resumed and expanded during the Kingdom of Van during the Iron Age. Now onto oilseed crops. Flax seeds were found, but only identifiable on the genus level, and in very small numbers. They've also found evidence of grape in various areas within these sites. They also found various weed species that seem to have been eaten as well, including different types of sorrel, pigweed, goosefoot species, chervil species, nettle species, and the caper bush. They also found evidence of other types of plants being eaten, such as different types of fruit. They found ruminants, specifically seeds of roses, indicating the consumption of rosehip, and seeds of some rubus species, which may be a blackberry or raspberry. Well, that's everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to Archaeobotany. In this episode, we'll cover the history of ground cereals in Greece in the Neolithic. Let's get started. In Neolithic Greece, a wide range of different cereal species were used. Due to being at the crossroads of both Asia and Europe, the ancient Greek peoples were the first to become totally reliant on wheat and barley. Cereals have also historically been processed in many different ways, either via cooking or other means, to allow for the improvement of the amount of nutrients absorbed by individuals who consume the grain. These methods include cooking via roasting, boiling or baking, fermentation, or by grinding it up. This paper by Dr. Valmoti searches for evidence of these three methods throughout ancient Greek dig sites, as well as the various grains used. Let's get started. Due to the poor preservation conditions of ancient Greece, the wild cereals available to the Greek people of that time period remain unknown. However, there are some exceptions. For instance, materials found at the French Sheet Cave dated to the Mesolithic era, showcased the use of wild barley by these ancient Greek people. A more recent survey of ancient Greek sites have found new samples, including the glooms of wheat, as well as the glooms of 
einkorn and emmer, as well as a mysterious fur type of wheat that resembles a wild species. Examples of free freshing wheat have also been found in a few cases, either in waste form or in storage units, although it was used at a much smaller scale than gloom wheats at that time. Based on the limited findings of such grain in comparison to the gloom variety, in many Neolithic dig sites in Greece, in terms of grain seed numbers found in that dig site, iron corn dominates that area, followed by that strange new species of wheat that resembles a wild species. In a few other sites, amber seems to dominate. In Bronze Age dig sites, loom variety weeds seem to continue to be predominant in such societies again based on the dig site evidence. There's also indications of barley processing consisting of ground up internodes and rachises of barley. Based on this remnant material, they've identified both 6-row and 2-row barley strains alongside naked and hulled varieties of barley, although they could not tell which ones appeared more frequently. During the Bronze Age, based on evidence from different dig sites in Greece, spelt wheat and pearl millet were first found. They were found in a site such as Arcadico, which dates around the end of the 3rd millennium BC, and Castanas and Aceros, which date to the second half of the 2nd millennium BC. The millet seeds, for instance, were also contained in a miniature pot, at that time period, showcasing greater advancements in pottery. Now on to cereal processing history. Now on to the processing of cereals based on archaeobotanical data. In most of the dig sites, cereal processing byproducts are common, although the remnants of the processing process of winnowing and coarse sieving are rarer due to it being limited in how many remnants are charred allowing it to be preserved. They have however found some examples in the late Neolithic dig site in Macri and the late Bronze Age dig site in Aceros. The most common example of wheat processing are gloom remnants, which are made through the process of dehusking wheat in hulled wheat varieties. Using writings from ancient Greek authors, it was found that although barley is considered a poor person food now, Back in the day, barley was considered the highest grade grain due to its healing properties and high nutrition. The healing properties being partially true due to the fact that it can lower blood cholesterol to a certain degree. In the Bronze Age sites of Northern Greeks, known as Meseritumba and Arkadiku, I'm definitely mispronouncing those words, the researchers found remnants of different grains in a ground-up form. An additional Bronze Age site called Egnokori found remnants of ground grain preparations as well. In a house that was likely burnt down based on archaeological evidence, they found remnants of ground-up grain in a clay container. Due to the physiological remnants that could be somewhat discerned, it was likely einkorn wheat. In yet another dig site, they found remnants of barley in a ground-up form as well. They also found remnants of grain that show evidence of boiling before grinding, similar to a Bulgarian dish called bulgur, which is also found in Greece. In ancient Greece, bulgur, trachmas, and kishk, all of which I'm probably mispronouncing, are common 
pastas made by the ancient Greeks and modern Greeks today. There's also evidence of writings that mention the use of iron corn and emmer as ingredients for making such pastas. Now onto the specific written sources to connect the archaeological and modern data together. Within the Mediterranean, recipes for the infusion of barley to make different dishes in combination with meat, milk products, and various other fruits and vegetables is common in both Persian, Lebanese, and other Middle Eastern societies, much of which were found in the 12th century. These were obtained by the author Abrel Salviv. One of the common dishes is called kisk. The preparations for these ancient Middle Eastern dishes are similar to ancient Greek dishes as well. And such recipes were mentioned in both ancient Greek cookbooks and ancient Greek mythology such as the works by Hesiod. And much of the ingredients grain-wise found in both societies are found in the dig sites of ancient Greece, prepared in such a way that it could be used to make such recipes, i.e. boiling followed by grinding. Based on many of these writings, several traditional foods found both in ancient Greece and Bulgaria show similarities to these ancient recipes as well, which may be as old as the ancient Bronze Age cultures. Well, that covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to part one of the multi-part season finale of Archaeobotany. In this episode, we'll talk about the history of agriculture in the pre-pottery Neolithic site of al Hama, Jordan. This paper is by Chantal E. White and was a dissertation created in 2013. Part 1 of this video will cover introduction to the pre-pottery Neolithic era. Let's get started. The pre-pottery Neolithic era lasted from approximately 11,700 BP to 8,250 BP. For a definition of BP, please see the link below. During this time, the most evidence of the transition from hunter-gatherer to farming appears. Based on a growing body of research, the process of plant cultivation was a complex and protracted process that lasted thousands of years before we got to the domesticated crops. The earliest known appearance of cultivated plants occurs in the pre-pottery Neolithic in a time period between 11,700 and 10,500 BP. Although during this time the diet primarily composed of wild plant foods, which seems to be supplemented with small-scale cultivation of cereals and possibly legumes. Botanical remnants collected from this time period provided evidence of a transitional stage of plant domestication, coined pre-domestication. In this state, these cereals showcase traits of both wild and domesticated plants. Cereals like barley, for instance, show this type of state of affairs. Based on similar evidence, no fully domesticated plants have been identified in the Southern Levant prior to the time period between 9,250 BP and 87,000 BP, where evidence of fully domesticated cereals and legumes were found. Although the archaeology studies on the botanical remnants have shown 
the morphological changes that occurred in plant domestication. They have not, however, showed evidence of early cultivation activities, i.e. harvesting, threshing, or processing, or how these activities developed and were refined over the ages. And few studies have provided contextual associations based on their data, hindering interpretation of plant processing, cooking, and discard activity. Although in recent years this has changed, allowing for more interpretations to be made regarding the excavation sites for the pre-pottery era. The El Hamas site, located in West Central Jordan, has materials from both time frames within the pre-pottery era, with materials that are separated by 1200 years based on current dating methodology. Excavations of the more ancient deposits have revealed remnants of different features such as hearths, storage bins, and human burials. In the latter part of this era, they have found architecture that consists primarily of rooms featuring plastered floors and small spots that may be interpreted as storage areas. Evidence of use, abandonment, renovation, and reuse are all found in these remnants. To learn more about the domestication process, they sampled various plant materials from different deposits, such as hearths, floor surfaces, and structural fills. The substances gathered were remnants of seeds, chaff, nuts, and fruit, and were compared with already known samples from other dig sites to obtain more information from them. And due to the fact that materials from different time periods are found in the site, the researcher had a broad range of evidence to create a timeline on how the means of subsistence change over time, such as the fact that harvesting, the harvesting of unripe pre-domesticated barley happened during the early part of the pre-pottery era, and that harvesting strategy actually increased the yields. And it took over a thousand years to get to modern barley since that point, indicating that the process of domestication is long and protracted, and potentially lasting thousands of years.
to the modern vegetation found in this region. This region can be broken down to several different subsections. The Central Highlands Plateau, the area known as Gore, the area known as the Floor Slope, the area known as the Lower Slope, the area known as the Terrace, the area known as the Upper Slope, and the Limestone Plateau. Due to the influx in Palestinian refugees during the period between 1948 and 1967, and the establishment of the Posh Company in 1978, and the Dead Sea Highway built in the early 1980s, many changes have happened in its landscape, and much of the farmlands used for irrigation of various vegetable crops like tomato and eggplant, as well as large groups of banana trees. This is the case in the Gore and Four Slope areas. Fruit trees are likewise cultivated alongside small patches of irrigated fields of wheat and barley. The remaining natural vegetation belongs to three areas within this region of this region. The saline soils of the Lycian Peninsula, the Hamada Desert of the Four Slope, and pockets of tropical vegetation near water sources. Saline soils of Lycian Peninsula currently support life forms found in the region of the Persian Gulf Desert and Semi-Desert. Although based on what a 19th century explorer described, it was once a pretty wood area with vast rushes and marshes. Another explorer in 1873 described similar phenomena and described date palm, rush plants, reed plants, and tamarisks growing in this area. Although by the later days of the 19th century, the wetlands have been removed due to the extraction of potassium chloride on a massive scale. Alongside the massive extraction of other materials such as chloride, salt, mud, animal feed, fertilizer, magnesia, phosphate, and bromine, and the diversion of water from the River Jordan. This has led to an increase in the amount of salt and a reduction of the sea level of that area, which has eradicated the entirety of the dense wetland present in the 19th century. In the runoff desert between the Dead Sea and the Lower Slope, various desert species of plant are found in that region, and it's mostly desert shrubland. And in the dry summer months, one can walk for meters without seeing a single plant specimen. Although in certain areas, moisture is trapped, creating small plant communities that are hodgepodges of different species. Plants that have been observed include a jujube species, a species of globe thistle, a plant called desert cotton, and a desert shrub known as Sassola jordanicola. In the floor slope during the 19th century, various travelers described a wide plain dominated by acacia trees and jujube relatives. For a large perennial stream running along an area dominated by date palms and oleanders, as well as a legion of tall grasses. Although at this point, 
overgrazing in combination with a declining water table has led to a decline with some travelers describing many of the acacia trees being gnarled and possibly dying. There are also mentions of the fields being used to grow barley, wheat, millet, tobacco, and indigo. As of right now, it's mostly focused on tomato cultivation alongside citrus and dates, with much of the woodland area being cleared and the marshes drained. The third type of vegetation present in the Gore Folk Slope area has remnants of tropical Sudan vegetation, probably an echo of the late Miocene era. Such plants include a jujube species, acacia species, among many other tropical species. Well, that covers part two. Stay tuned for part three, where we'll cover the rest of section two of this paper. Welcome to part three of this multi-part finale. In this episode, we'll continue where we left off in part two, talking about the vegetation of the upper slope and plateau. In 1815, various travelers such as Burkhart noted that the uplands were being cultivated for wheat, barley, and sorghum, as well as olives, figs, and tobacco, much of which are still grown to this day. Although only one-tenth of the arable land was farmed during the mid-1800s, at this point, most of the land is being used for agriculture or pasture. Although the plant coverage of this area is sparse due to overgrazing and a drop in the water table due to irrigation, a species called Artemisia herba alba is a dominant species within this region. Other plants like wild rue, a local species of sea holly, common balota, and loliolum sublatum, the last remaining member of that genus as well as a salvia species. In the limestone plateau, oleanders predominated this area, alongside a plant simply referred to as a cane. Although there is substantial erosion and extensive grazing, common balota and one salvia species commonly dominate this area, alongside many other types of shrub and there is also remnants of Mount Tabor oak and wild pistachio as well. In other areas of this ecosystem, other species of pistachio and oak are also found, alongside wild almonds. Now onto the local vegetation of El Hama, the site proper. This area is close to a natural spring. In 1988, it was reported that the following life forms grew within this region. Oleander, tamarisks, willow, acacia, and palm trees. Crane breaks were found in marshy spots along this area as well. This is still true today, although the region has shrunk since the water retrieval has intensified. Although rushes, reeds, tamarisks, and fig species are still found within this region. Other species were also found in this region as well, such as a tree species called Abraham's Balm, a sedge species called Gallingale, and yet another species called the Severn Cattail. A few remnant populations of a jujube relative, an acacia species, and date palm were also found in that area. There's also an open woodland area that primarily consists of a species of local juniper, with a few pistachio trees also being found in that region. Most of the plant specimens found in that region were damaged by animal grazing, with the exception of plants like oleander, which had toxic chemicals within them. 
or forms that ward off potential aggressors. In this region, crops around the site are often grown. These include citrus, olive, fig, and apricot, as well as pomegranate, almond, eggplant, cauliflower, squash, broad beans, watermelon, and hot peppers. Feral onions and feral oats have also been found in this region as well. Although, irrigation is not used in this area, suggesting reliable rainfall. Now on to the ancient history of these regions. During the Neolithic era, many plant tissues were excavated. Using radiocarbon dating, they found all the specimens they had were around 11,500 years old. In 2006, Dr. Robertson argued that the early Holocene where the Neolithic era took place may have been the wettest phase of the past 25,000 years across the Levant, with vast monsoons. This seems to be the case given that during this time period there is an increase in percentage of oak and potassio pollen found in these regions, indicating a higher level of rainfall and water. Since potassio trees need a minimum of 200 millimeters of spring rainfall to survive, and very very mild winters, it is likely that this time period was associated with increased waterfall and the increase in temperature. Further evidence came from pollen cores obtained from lakes in Iran and Turkey. These likewise showed the movement of pistachios and oak woodlands into areas that were formerly grasslands that are inhospitable to tree growth of the type we're talking about. Based on archaeological data from, from the sites Ain, Gazal, and Basta, the most common plant in the charcoal remnants was an oak species, further indicating the spread of oak during this time period. In the Basta region, juniper and pistachio were also found, and they dominated in that region, suggesting that area was colder than the other area. At the end of pre-pottery Neolithic era, the most abundant forms of pollen were found from grasses, pine trees, hornbeam trees, and a small weed called a plantain, as well as members of the lily family. This suggests that there was an increase in water during this time period. It's estimated that there was about 200 millimeters of water in that region, about 150 more than was seen in that region in current year. In certain areas of this region in ancient times, there was evidence of jujube species and acacia species in the ancient Arabian desert and the ancient Iraeoturian steppe. In another site, Tor al-Tirik, there was evidence of marsh plants and artemisia plants, as well as amaranth species and graminae species based on the pollen record, with only trace amounts of pollen from pistachio or oak, indicating that at least one of these regions within this locale was once a wetland, although now it's a grassland. This change from Moist wetland to dry grassland may have contributed to the loss of the pre-pottery culture that predominated that area before switching to the next culture. Stay tuned for part 4 of this multi-part series. Thank you for watching! Hello and welcome to part 4 of the third part of the Archaeology of El Hama sub-series in the Archaeobotany series.
In this episode, we will talk about the archaeology of El Hama. Within this area, they found relics from all three stages of the pre-pottery era. For instance, research done by Dr. Locus unearthed cooking residue from a hearth that dates between 11,120 BP and 10,570 BP. They also found a piece of wood charcoal lo located beneath a floor that dates between 9,792 and 9,588 BP, as well as a layer of charcoal within a small bin that dates between 8,356 BP and 8,071 BP. In a site dated to the second half of the pre-pottery era, several artifacts were found, such as a small cup made of basalt, as well as a basalt pestle, and a large bone knife. They also found walls that date to the early parts of the pre-pottery era that measure up to 50 centimeters and are made from cobblestone. Additional findings found that these walls are attached to a structure that was built a little bit later that forms a honeycomb-shaped architecture within a series of walls. Within this large honeycomb-like structure, different substances were found. For instance, one of the walls was collapsed inward and within that rubble, remnants of cereal chaff of some sort in combination with large reed stems were found. This may indicate that this substance was used for building material. In another part of this area, another large bone knife was found, alongside a partially exposed remnants of a human skull. This area is further excavated, which revealed an entire human skeleton, and remnants of what is likely and remnants of what is likely a human infant. This area showcases a mostly burnt remnant covered with deposits of organic material and burned surfaces, alongside layers of ash within this excavation site, indicating that this area died in a fire. Within the same site, they also found a crafted mud floor, several centimeters thick, and the housing was semi-subterranean in nature. They found a mud-molded feature that looked similar to a raised hearth, due to the vast ashy contents in that area. A similar device was found in the Iraq Edub site as well. In the first structure in that site, a large mass of organic sediment was found, and within that mass was two pestles, one polished stone axe, and a car figurine. In structure 2, a burial pit with evidence of repeated cleaning was found. However, the big looting theft that happened in 2007 destroyed much of this material, so the remnants of the subterranean bin that was also found in that region was also lost. Although some stuff was removed from that material before the looting began and could be analyzed. And from what they've got, we can note that it contained a high amount of pistachio nutlets and cereals in large numbers, indicating that these were a large part of the diet of that area. They also found remnants of a species of gerbil called Tristan's Gerd, a small rodent that occupies unoccupied human structures on occasion. This indicates that this housing was unoccupied for at least a few months of the year, as the species avoids humans like the plague. Although it could not have been too long since house mice were also found in this dig site, specifically the remnants. 
indicating a sufficient amount of food to sustain a population. Now on to the late post-pottery civilization excavation. In the parts of this excavation site that are dated to the later parts of the pre-pottery era, they found in those sites a complex network of storage spaces and interconnected rooms. And although they're smaller than sites of later dates, their architecture is similar to similar cultures in different areas. The walls of these areas were well built with double-faced limestone slabs, often secure with mud and mortar. These walls are also plastered, sometimes multiple times, with a white or on occasion red ochre or lime plaster. There's also evidence of large rooms being separated into smaller rooms by additional walls, with access to different parts through small doorways. There's also examples of aesthetically designed windows, called window lintels. There's also very small cell-like rooms that are used probably for storage spaces since very few individuals could sleep in those areas. This living quarters also seem to have multiple floors as well. They have also found subfloor channels that may have been used to channel water throughout their houses. There's also evidence of plaster floors as well. And beneath the floors lie a layer of rubble made out of cobblestone and flat stones indicating some sort of foundation. The channels could have also been used as ventilation shafts based on the work of Kujet and Gory Morris. Within this area they also found crude devices to make beads and various remnants of shells, shell beads, and various other types of beads. In one room they found remnants of a large number of mammal leg bones alongside what seems to be crayons of red or yellow coloration, as well as various grindstones. Initially believed to be used for food grinding, it was later revealed through surface analysis that it was used for grinding pigments. It was likely that the animal leg bones, likely of capra origin, were used to make pigments. Other remnants found within this area also suggest that lime plaster may have also been made in this area as well as they found dumped ash as well as charcoal of various sources. Well, that covers part 4. Stay tuned for part 5. Hello and welcome to part 5 of the Archaeobotany of El Hama. Let's get started. The researcher took samples of different artifacts from both sites, within the same site, both from the early pre-pottery era and from the late pre-pottery era. And here's what was found. The researcher found flooring deposits, hearths, ash features, dumps for remnants of flora and fauna after processing, human burial pits, and subterranean trash bins. From those remnants, 99.6% of the non-wood botanical remains were recovered using the flotation process, leaving only a small amount of charcoal remnants being found in that site. A total of 3,817 non-wood botanical specimens were identified. These were then sorted into 66 taxonomic groups by the researcher and included carbonized seeds, cereal chaff, nutshells, fruit pits, remnants of fruit flesh, and legume pod fragments and other plant parts, such as seed dispersal mechanisms, wild grass bubbles, and other remnants. 
Based on his data, the researcher, Dr. White, found that the diet of these people consisted of barley, lentils, and vetch. These specimens represented over half, 59.2% of the total specimens found in that area, with barley being the most numerous of this plant population. In terms of grains, it was a mixture of both wild and cultivated barley. This makes the possibility of both wild and domesticated barley growing in the same field a possibility, or that both wild and cultivated barley may have been independently harvested. Lentils and vetch were also in high numbers within that population. Both the possibility of intensive harvesting from the wild or cultivation are possible. 40.8% of the remaining plant material were of wild species origin. The largest number of wild-type plants include grains of various wild grasses, followed by seed pods of something related to borage, with at least one species of the borage family being processed in this area. There has also been found to be various seeds of the Plantago genus within the plant assemblages. In another contemporary settlement site called the Wadi Jalat 7, at least five Plantago species have been used in medical treatment based on current archaeological evidence. Other plants found in El Hama include the storkbill plant, which is fully edible in all parts, including the roots. A group of wild legumes called goat's thorn was also found in that area. Remnants of mallow species alongside wild fig and wild pistachio remnants were also found. Only small amounts of emmer were found in this area. Within the barley populations, 71% of the grains contain a ripped scar, which indicates freshening activities. They have also found that most of the plant material was cereal in origin, with lentils and vetch being found in lower numbers than cereals. In the wild populations, they have also found that various bulbule-producing grasses, such as Phalaris species, and Pua bulbosa were found in high frequency alongside the air wild plants. Due to the high amount of foodstuff found in that area within the site, this may indicate that that part of the site was used for cooking purposes. Now on to the late pre-pottery era remnants. In the parts of the El Hamas site that had late pre-pottery artifacts, here's what was found. They found 86 types of Taxima groups of plant, which include cereal grains, cereal chaff, large seed legumes, small seed legumes, and wild grasses, as well as other wild slash weedy taxa and various fruits and nuts. In this era of the pre-pottery era, MR wheat grains were increasing in large amounts based on the increased amount of MR found in this area, although barley still overtook emmer by a considerable margin. With 50% of the emmer found in this site being dated to the late parts of the pre-pottery era, the emmer wheat has a rough abscission scar. This suggests that the wheat found was fully domesticated and as such must have come from a different area of the Levant before being adopted by the El Hama people during that time period. Barley chaff, however, contains equal amounts of rough and smooth abscission scars, indicating both partly domesticated and fully domesticated barley. 
in the king crossbreeding between wild barley and cultivated barley. When compared to the earlier parts of the pre-pottery era, large legumes were present in much lower numbers, suggesting a decreased reliance on large legumes as a staple food source during this time period. The legumes fall into the size range of both wild and domesticated types, making it difficult to indicate if they are one or the other. In both eras, small legumes were found in similar numbers. They found different species in the Astragalus genus, the Melitotus genus, and the Trigonella genus, although specific species could not be identified due to poor preservation. Dr. White also found Lolium species and Phalaris species, both of which are wild grasses, and both of which are likely weeds and cultivated cereal fields. Although Lolium did not appear in the earlier parts of the pre-pottery era, and since Lolium is often found in wheat fields as a weed, it may have been an invasive species to that region. They also found seeds of the narrow-leaf stoneweed in that region. They also found remnants of a plant in the Star of Bethlehem genus, a type of bulb plant. They also found remnants of rock rose and heliotropes in that area as well. Dr. White also found horned poppy in that area as well as various mallow species, as well as remnants of both fig and pistachio. The cooking harvests of this area consistently had 20-42% to grain fragments and 49-70% to small legumes. This indicates that both of them may have been cooked together. Well, that covers part 5. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to part 6 of the El Hama sub-series. In this episode, we'll talk about the context of which these artifacts were found in, and the researcher will give you the broad framework of what's going on based on this archaeological evidence. You'll start by talking about what carbonization is. Carbonization is the most common form of botanical preservation in archaeological sites. This is caused by exposure of seeds and wood to fire. Through the process of being covered in ash and exposed to high temperature, wood and seeds can be carbonized. Although only 10% gets charred in such a way that it becomes perfectly preserved. In robust plant parts such as large seeds, the preservation is perfect, creating a perfect facsimile of what the plant once was. Although other parts, such as fragile glooms, may be deformed or destroyed in the process. With seeds, even in the same genus, being distorted by varying degrees. Although this process seems to be minimal in barley. As such, it's not considered to be factual that the plant materials dug up represent an accurate representation of what the plant once was. The perfectibility of the preservation can be controlled by seed size, shell thickness, oil content, and wood density. Moist specimens can survive this process better than dry specimens, although moisture release may cause deformation, such as pulping, embryo detachment, and tissue expansion. The specimen is likely to carbonize when the temperature is above 300 degrees Celsius for 50 minutes, but it will likely be destroyed if it's between 500 and 700 degrees Celsius for the same duration of time. Although alternating periods of heating and cooling are more conductive to preservation through this method. Now on to the researcher's description of the problems with con context. As of right now, 
Dr. White could not establish a direct direct relationship between the charring events that spawned these samples and the samples themselves in terms of their current location. Since most of the types of materials found are Class C contexts, which are landfills which may contain material from multiple sources. This is different than Class A or Class B types, which are rare in such dig sites. Class C sites are the most common type of artifacts found in such dig sites. These can be used to confirm whether or not an unusual event such as an accidental fire occurred in the ancient past. For instance, in our Neolithic sites in the Near East, sites with known accidental house fires within their pedigree have revealed carbonized remnants of both wild barley, oats, and broad beans and lentils in large amounts, while landfills have repeated patterns of materials indicating repeated activity. This creates a high level of uniformity in comparison to what's found in a fire that happens accidentally. Using the information gained from hearths, they found low to moderate amounts of chaff remains, as well as remnants of ground-up pieces of grain. This indicates that food grains were often ground up as a preparation, while the chaff may have been used as extra fuel for the fire. In the pre-pottery era site, Alhama, not one single whole unprocessed barley or wheat seed was found, indicating that most if not all of the grain was processed, and the burnt remnants of chaff in the hearth parts of the site indicate that the chaff was likely used as fuel habitually. In another structure within the same time frame and location, the materials found in the underground bin are identical to the landfill waste found in structure 1. It's speculated that the material found in the waste piles was used in the subfloor preparation material for the construction of the subsurface area. Now on to the conclusions drawn from this context. Based on the research Dr. White came up with and talked about in the last five parts, it can be concluded tentatively that there is an extensive culture of grain processing due to the likely remnants of cereal harvesting, freshing, dehusking, and grain grinding. Due to the same material being found in both landfills and what's found in subterranean bins and between walls and floors, indicate that the leftover material from the processing process was either buried or used as filler material for walls or floors. It's also speculated that wild or weedy plants may have been encouraged to grow alongside barley and legumes and harvested as they ripened. As many of these plants were not fully domesticated yet, the distinction between weed and crop may have not been fully developed at that point. This speculation comes from the fact that the species found in that area that are often considered weeds were also edible or medicinal in various cultures. For instance, Heliotropium species are often used by Near Eastern people as medicine for treating abscesses or boils. Malva species are often used for wounds or skin ulcers. Paganum harmala was often used in folkloric medicine as an anti-inflammatory and sedative. Plantagos have been historically used for tooth pain and stomach problems, and so on and so forth. Dr. White was unable to determine whether or not the pea specimens or legume specimens were 
domesticated or not, since the earliest traits of domestication are the loss of pod shattering and the loss of seed dormancy. And these traits are invisible to the naked eye from a plant remains perspective. As a result, the first domesticated legumes cannot be distinguished from wild ones or from close relatives. Although the possibility of both legumes and grains being grown together is still a possibility, considering that until the last century, legume species and grain species were grown side by side and harvested independently. In Iraq, for instance, barley was grown intermixed with fava bean, with both being harvested independently. Barley was first be harvested by a sickle, followed by the beans being harvested by hand picking. There also seems to be a higher level of fruit and nut remnants in the earliest parts of the post-pottery era, and in both the early stages and late stages of the post-pottery era, there were high amounts of fig and pistachio remnants within the dig sites. In modern days, pistachio leaves were often eaten by villagers as salad, and fragments of pistachio nutshells have survived indicating that the nuts may have also been consumed as well. And on the topic of medicine, at least five species of plantago have been used in Jordan as folkloric medicine, granting the possibility that these species may have been used by the Neolithic peoples for similar purposes. Well that covers that, stay tuned for the last episode of this series. Based on the archaeological remains of plant material, Partly domesticated barley continued to be cultivated for a thousand years after the end of the early pre-pottery era. Other late pre-pottery era sites have also found that partly domesticated barley was also grown in other regions of the Levant, based on sites such as Basta and Ain Ghazal. As such, it's likely the traditions of barley cultivation in that region could not start the full domestication process and only partially began it. This is despite the fact that many late pre-pottery sites were also referred to as megasites that may have contained hundreds or thousands of individuals, a population far greater than the early pre-pottery era. They also found that 94% of emerite was domesticated fully by the time the late pre-pottery era began, with no evidence of wild emmer being found in this site. This indicates that the emmer may have been brought from elsewhere to the site. Recent genetic studies on modern emmer populations suggested that emmer may have been first domesticated in Turkey and spread southward by the middle of the pre-pottery era, although some localized domestication of wild emmer may be possible. This is due to the fact that Turkey has more rainfall than the area where El Hama currently rests. In addition, during the late pre-pottery era, the first evidence of sheep domestication appears in this time period. And there's evidence that this species came from the northern Levant, not the El Hama area. This indicates that there is a possibility of trade going on between different networks of tribes throughout the Levant, due to materials from different areas winding up in different spots. This is further evidenced by the fact that Weed species not found in the pre-pottery era early on are found in the remnants of plants in the late pre-pottery era. And since emmer wheat requires more water than barley does, 
and more water than can be naturally given by this area, suggests that some form of irrigation or water management was happening during that time period. Since in the pottery Neolithic period, check dams were found, this may indicate by the late pre-pottery era, may have had some sort of proto-war management methodology. Well, that concludes this series. Thank you for watching, and stay tuned for our next series on Ethnobotany. Welcome to the series finale of Archaeobotany, where we conclude the El Hama Archaeobotany history. Let's begin. The early pre-pottery era, based on remnants of plant material found in the parts of the site dated to such an era, seem to suggest that the agriculture of El Hama was dominated by wild and partly domesticated barley. There's also evidence of harvesting of immature grain, which would have maximized the amount of recovered grains per plant, although it would have come at the expense of an additional threshing step, which would cause the characteristic scar that happens from threshing. This has not been seen anywhere else in the Levant in Archaeobotany, making this site a unique one-off in the history of agriculture. The strategies used to harvest barley in this area were probably a combination of sickle cutting similar to other Neolithic areas in combination with other methods developed over time. On a side note, sickles have been found in various sites. For instance, the Neolithic society of Natufian have been found, and the barley chaff from El Hama corresponds to barley that's been cut very low at the stem to collect both straw and grain. This situation could only happen with immature plants, with the proto-domesticated barley still shattering when fully ripe. Based on current evidence, experiments with wild seed of different wild cereals harvested in the unripe state do not require seed sowing or tillage to be usable as a farm system, since the seeds that fell would sow themselves, and next year's crop will be sown the previous year as a result. This process will have slowed down the domestication process of barley since wild populations would be able to grow alongside partially domesticated ones, limiting the selective pressures for domestication. This partly domesticated state may have lasted for thousands of years in the Levant without a fully domesticated plant being formed. Now on to the late pre-pottery era, conclusions based on what was talked about in Dr. White's thesis.